0: All right, you have your Bibles, let's open together to Genesis uh, chapter 2. Now, up until this point, I have been going verse by verse uh, through Genesis, and I kind of made a a game plan for um, the rest of the spring, getting us into summer, kind of mapping out some of the passages and stories we're going to be looking at. So now we're going to kind of start skipping uh, some chunks and hitting some of the highlights in the book of Genesis, you know. Genesis 1 through 3 are very popular verses for, you know, apparent reasons. Uh, But just so you know, um, we can't cover all 50 chapters. Uh, If we did, uh, we would be in Genesis, you know, for a couple years, likely. So, I'm going to hit some highlights, and then we're going to switch gears uh, in the summer. I think we're going to go to Proverbs. Um, But like I said, if you've got your Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, We're going to read verses 15 through 25, Um, this section of verses, but I'm Really what i'm gonna focus on this morning is the last three verses of this passage we're gonna we're gonna read them all but i'm gonna focus uh on the last three so if you have your bible let's let's turn there together uh if you don't that's okay the the text is printed for you uh in the bulletin um but let me let me begin by by saying this this morning we're 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 dealing with a topic that's um culturally sensitive um you know we're talking about marriage this morning and um, my assumption, and when I preach on you know passages that deal with a specific topic like marriage, is um, in, in one sense one assumption may be that's not going to apply to everybody in the room because not everybody in the room is married. Uh, but here's what's great about this: here's why we all need to be experts on marriage. Um, God's story begins in Genesis one and two with a marriage. God's story in Revelation ends with a marriage. Uh, in Genesis 1, it's, it's the first Adam and Eve, the first marriage that God creates. And then at the end of Revelation, it's the last Adam and his bride that is the church. And all throughout Scripture, God uses bridal marriage language to kind of explain his relationship, his commitment, the depth of his love for his church. So even this morning, if you aren't married, uh, if you want to be married and aren't married um, this is a great passage for us to understand. Anyway, uh, parents think about it this way: um, you know, you can kind of tell your kids about marriage, you can teach your kids about marriage, but they're going to they're going to get their paradigm of marriage from you uh, by how you do it, how you embody it, and how you live it out. Uh, so, one of the ways you can you can help them this morning is by listening, embodying this in front of them, because that's where they're going to learn about marriage. So. Something in here for everybody this morning, right? It's the Walmart of sermons, right? Please don't quote me on that. Can you can we edit that out? I don't think I want that in the… I don't want that on the podcast. All right. Uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying… The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, "'This at last.'" is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, It's been a couple years, but I was having... uh, issues with my, uh, my car, and I could get my car started, but I couldn't keep it running. It would start, it would turn over, but a couple seconds later, the car would die. So uh, me and a good friend who knows a lot about uh, cars, uh, his name's Google, uh, we decided that the problem with my car was the fuel filter. You know, something was clogging the fuel line, it was the filter, and this is why it would kind of start, but then, but then stop. So I called a mechanic, and I said, you know, I, I can't drive my uh, my car into your shop. Can you come uh, pick it up and tow it into your shop for repairs? He said, what's wrong? I told him, and, you know, I, I inserted into the story, uh, and I'm pretty sure uh, it's my fuel filter. And he said, okay. And I think I even told him another time, you know, my best guess here. I'm not a mechanic, but boy, I'd love to be. Um, it's, I think it's my fuel filter. And he said uh, on the phone, you know, does um, does your car have gas in it? And I said, I'm offended. How do you, <laughs> how do you ask me that? Of, of course, you know, my car has gas in it. And then I went and checked just to make sure, right? Uh, I was right about half a tank. So I was like, okay, it's not a gas issue. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's a fuel filter. And He said, all right, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll check it out. Uh, a couple hours goes by, he calls me up and says, well, here's the good news. It's not your fuel filter. Oh, that's wrong with the car. I said, well, that's great. Well, what is it? He said, it's your gas gauge. I said, your gas gauge is broken. You don't have any gas in your car. And I said, oh, so you were right. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but, you know, as, as consumers, as users, as participants in all different kinds of products and different kinds of things, Sometimes we kind of assume ourselves because we use things, um, uh, you know, and use them daily um, that we're experts on them or with them, uh, like I was with my car. I was, sure, I was adamant it was the fuel filter. It was not a gas issue, it was the filter issue. Uh, but, but the truth of the matter is, is the people who know the most about a product, about a thing, aren't the ones who use them, aren't the ones who participate in them, it's the ones who make them. It's the creators. It's the producers. It's the the mechanics, right? Everything I was telling this mechanic was signaling to him, this is, (laughs) it's a simple problem. I just don't think you have fuel in your car. And I'm going, no, no, no. no. I drive this car every day. I know this car, right? It's mine. I drive it every day. Uh, But he was right, and I was wrong. Um, We can do that same thing with marriage, If you're married this morning, the temptation is to say, because I'm married and because I'm participating in a marriage daily, weekly, yearly, I know a thing or two about marriage. And that's partially true. Uh, You may be saying, as a student here this morning, that as as watching your parents kind of do their marriage, you know a lot about marriage. And and that's partially true. But it takes kind of a humble person to say, but we're not the creator, we're not the producer, we're not the mechanics of marriage. The creator and the producer, they know more about their products than we ever will. So it takes a certain level of humility, uh, especially as it pertains to marriage, to go, okay, God, this is something that you've made. Marriage is not a social institution. It's not something that, you know, cultures have kind of agreed, like, let's do this together. This This is as primal and as early and as foundational as Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God made marriage. He produced it. He created it. Therefore, He knows more about it than we know. Um, so this morning is, is kind of an opportunity to, to listen. And, you know, not to, not to talk about like, hey, how does, how does marriage kind of play out? Give me a couple nuts and bolts. This is the yoke of marriage. Um, this is not, you know, Pastor Jake's hack to, you know, how to survive marriage in the 21st century. This is, this is God's foundational truths about marriage. Um, and three things I want to point out uh, this morning, is three things I want to highlight. I want to talk about value, I want to talk about union, and I want to talk about intimacy. Value, union, and intimacy. And, and again, these, these aren't, you know, again, Jake's clever hacks. These are, are, are foundational to what it means to be married. God created it. He understands it better than we do. Um, if, if you were to say, you know, hey, Jake, my spouse and I want to, you know, come talk to you and Paige about marriage. Maybe you need a tune-up, or maybe you're having a, a struggle. What, what, what I do in my head is I go back to these three categories. Um, because usually, um, if there's a struggle or if there's a problem within the marriage, it has to do with one of these three things. Um, the Lord's made it very simple, very clear for us. So let, let's jump in with the first one, Value. Uh, what does it mean to communicate value uh, to one another? What I think the passage is telling us that is uh, this marriage, this this union between a husband and a wife, it's got to create an atmosphere of equality, an atmosphere of value, or a marriage will self-destruct. A marriage has got to have value, it's got to have equality, or it'll self-destruct. Now, what do I mean uh, about equality? Um, When you think about the roles of, of men and women. Yes, as we look into the rest of Scripture, roles of husbands and wives are very different. There are some things that a man can do and a man can't do. And there are some things that a woman can do and a woman can't do. There's different roles. But before God talks about the roles of men and women, how, how they're different, He talks about how they're similar first. And this is foundational, right? This is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, right? He says, as, as far as value, from the Creator's perspective, the one who has made man and woman, He says, in His eyes, in His economy, before we're talking about work, before we're talking about childbearing, before we're, you know, we can form our identity anywhere else, in God's eyes, man and, and woman, male and female, husbands and wives, are created with equal value from God's perspective. One does not hold 51% of of the value over the other who holds just 49. It's 50-50 or 100-100, right? Uh, Let me show you where you see that in, in this passage. Look at verse 23. Now, this is not God talking. Now, this is Adam. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Um, this, this song, this hymn, this poem of Adam, as, as he's been naming creatures, as he's, you know, watching, you know, creatures reproduce, and as, as he's been owning and, and exercising dominion over, over this garden in which God has placed him, he's been by himself. So, what does God do? He causes Adam to fall asleep, and from his, from his rib, from his very body, he produces woman. And this is what Adam is, is recognizing here: that I've got bones, she's got bones. I've got flesh, she's got flesh, just like me. And and you know, if if you're looking at this from a from a literature uh, perspective, uh, notice how the indentation here is written by Moses in verse 23. It's it's set apart like a song or like a poem. This was meant to be sung. Uh, this was meant to be kind of dwelled over, and you know. Dissolved on the tongue like a piece of candy over a long period of time. You're not supposed to rush through this. God through Moses is saying, pause here for a minute. Right? We made the Lord of the Rings illustration a couple weeks ago about this when you see, like, um, you know, poetry or music. This is the author's way of saying, slow down here. Don't miss what's being said. It's it's flowery, it's poetic. Yes, there's some parallelism here, but don't miss it. You see what Adam is doing? He's celebrating. He's singing, he's rejoicing in something that God has already said. And if you have your Bible, flip back to Genesis chapter 1 for a second. I didn't put this in the bulletin, and I I wish I had, but we looked at this passage a couple weeks ago. It's Genesis 1, verse 27. We've seen uh, Moses do this before, kind of pause, make a song, make a poem right in the middle of some narrative. Again, he wants us to slow down Uh, On day six in Genesis chapter 1, he interrupts creation right in the middle of day six to kind of sing this song. God sings this one in verse 27 over Adam and Eve. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Now this is where I I wish we were all Hebrew scholars because if you could see this last sentence in verse 27, Male and female He created them. The word in Hebrew for male and female is ish and isha. There aren't vowels like we have vowels in the English language. If you want a vowel in Hebrew, it's dots, it's pointings, it's little lines. It's very, very subtle. It's easy to miss. So when you're reading, if you're reading this in the Hebrew, the the words almost look exactly the same. Ish and isha, as as if to just, you know... through a literary device, put an exclamation point on this idea of value and equality between a man and woman, Um, even the words look the same in the Hebrew, in the original language. Very, very little difference. So, from the outset, before Eve can find her value in in mothering or childbearing, before, you know, Adam can, can adopt a false identity through his work Or through his tending of the garden, God says before any of that happens, from the creator's perspective, you have value, an equal value. Man is not more valuable than woman, and woman is not more valuable than man. You're equal in value. So what does that have to do uh, with marriage? This is one of those points where, you know, it's kind of obvious and it's kind of like a no-duh pastor uh, point very, very easy to understand, very, very easy to affirm, and say, yes, I agree with that, but it's terribly difficult to embody. Now, thinking about this, students. Do your parents, your mom and dad, do they display um, non-verbally through their actions um, that they are both equal in God's eyes? Do they communicate equality and value? Uh, husbands and wives, verbally and non-verbally, uh, do you communicate to your spouse uh, that they are just important in God's eyes that you are? Uh, think about it this way. There are a lot of ways to communicate um, that someone is a um, little less equal, a little less valuable in God's eyes than you are. Right? You don't have to say it. You have to say to the other person, I'm more valuable than you are. You don't have to say it. You can do it through your actions. Uh, think about it financially. Here's how, here's how it looks financially. Uh, you give yourself a little bit more financial freedom, a little bit more mad money, a little bit more grace when it comes to overspending than you do your spouse. When they overspend, they're going to they're hear about it from you. You're going to keep them on a little bit tighter leash. You see what you're doing financially? You're just saying, I'm just a little bit more equal, just a little bit more valuable in God's eyes than you are. You're not saying it, but you're displaying it nonverbally. Uh, abuse is, is another form of telling someone that they are, they are less equal and less valuable in God's eyes than you are. I mean, obviously, uh, any kind of physical uh, abuse or, or physical harming of someone is, is, is a form of devaluing that person and saying, you are not valuable in my eyes or God's. Uh, and not just physical, but verbal. If you ignore if you talk down to, if you're condescending, if you're defensive, uh, if, if that other person is always the problem in the marriage and not you, that is a form of devaluing that person. Sure, theoretically, yeah, we're, we're equal in God's economy, but when it comes to our practical lives, do you communicate nonverbally to your spouse that they are just as important to God as you are? That's meddling, right? That's hard. That's really hard to do. That's value. That's the first point. Uh, the second is um, this idea of, of union. And in this point, I'm going to call it the Texas Two-Step, right? And we, most of us have heard that if not, you know, tried to do it at some point in our lives. The Texas Two-Step is one dance, but it requires two steps, Right? Uh, this, this, this next sort of like foundational idea um, or, or, or value behind marriage is kind of like the Texas two-step. It's one thing, but it's two moves, okay? It's separation and union, okay? Uh, look back at verse 24 and see if you can see it in this passage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. You see it, the separation? That's the first step. That's the left foot. And then here's the right foot. And then hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's one of those things where if you don't have both, the left and the right foot, you don't have the dance. You'll stumble and you'll fall. If you don't have equality, uh, your marriage will stumble. If you don't have separation and union, your marriage will fail as well. Um, This language uh, here in verse 24, uh, a man shall leave Uh, his father and mother. And this word, hold fast. Um, If you've read the Old Testament, if you've, you know, studied, you know, any of the covenant language uh, throughout the Scriptures, you know, all sorts of bells and alarms should be going off in your head. Here's what I mean. Um, The movie, The Christmas Story, we've all seen that one, right? Little Ralphie, who wants a red rider BB gun. Uh, One of the most famous scenes from that movie is the flagpole scene. You remember the flagpole scene? It's recess, it's like after lunch, and all the kids are out on the playground, and you know, one kid dares another uh, to put his tongue on the frozen flagpole, knowing what? That if he does, his tongue is going to freeze to the flagpole. And the kid says, nah. And another kid says, "You know, I dare you. And some of the kids are like, ooh. And the guy says, nah, I'm not going to do it. Another kid says, I double dog dare you. And the kids go, ooh, now this is getting serious. And the kid goes, no, I'm not going to do it. And then finally one kid says, I triple dog dare you. And then everybody gets quiet. And you remember what the narrator says in the movie? It's like, there's nothing higher than a triple dog dare. Like that, that you, you have reached the pinnacle, right? And there's nothing above that. Now you have to do it, right? Um, in, in the same way, the language that's being used here in this passage kind of has the punch, the power of like a triple dog dare. Um, this language is, is the covenant language that God uses throughout all of the Old Testament when he says, um, this, this idea of leaving, um, but, he's, but he's, instead of talking about the mother and the father, he's talking about our idols. That's what I want you to do to your idols, those things that you love that aren't me. I want you to leave them, forsake them, separate yourself from them, but at the same time, I want you to hold fast to what? To me. And, and so if you've read the Old Testament, if you understand some, some covenant theology language, you're reading this and going, that's, that's covenant language. Um, that's not just some, you know, some words that he's kind of thrown together. Um, what, what God here is is doing is saying, like this this commitment, this leaving and this, this uniting with a spouse has the punch, has the power, is the top shelf of of like a triple dog dare. This is serious. This is very important. So, what does that look like? Again, two steps here. There's a separation from mother and father, and then there's a a fusion, a union between a husband and a wife. Think about it like in terms of, of plumbing and pipelines. This is the way God designed it. When you're born and when you're a child, um, you hear from God, you experience God's fatherliness and God's care primarily through your parents. And that is, that is a wide pipeline, and you are underneath it. And that is um, the vehicle and the means that God uses to communicate His love, His discipline, His care, His oversight of you is your mother and your father until you get married. What happens in marriage is that pipeline between mother and father gets turned off but then how are you supposed to experience um, God's love, God's care, God's discipline, God's protection over you? You've just shut off all your pipelines. Well, God creates another one, and what opens up is now this pipeline between a husband and a wife. Uh, This this relationship between mother and father is is meant to be temporary. It's got a short shelf life. It's not meant to be there permanently. But that's why when you get married, we say, until death do we part, because this pipeline is, is, is wider, it's broader. It's going to com- communicate more things to you about the gospel than in some ways your parents could, because now you are in a committed relationship. You're becoming one flesh. As important as your parents are to you, um, the, the most important earthly relationship that God has created now is this relationship between a husband and a wife, it's the most important earthly relationship that God has given His people, husband and wife. So, this pipeline is being turned off from father and mother and now being opened, lefty Lucy, right? open between you and your spouse. So, that's the two moves that you've got to have in marriage. There's got to be a separation, and it's got to be looked in the eye. It's got to be acknowledged. It's got to be known. It's got to be deliberate. And just like the last point, it's got to be a financial separation, it's got to be an emotional separation, it's got to be a spiritual separation, right? If your habit at the end of the day, if you've had a bad day, is to call your mom, now you call your spouse. If you're an external processor and you're trying to think through decisions about how, how are we going to do budget or, or what decision are we going to make about the car or about the house or about our children... If your temptation is, is to call one of your parents or your dad, now the temptation is to go to your spouse first, and you decide. Why? Because you two are one flesh. It's an I and a you becoming a we. Uh, now your money is our money. Now your gifts are our gifts. Now your body is our body. There's got to be this, this fusion, this, this union together, a decision-making Becoming one flesh, emotionally, spiritually, physically. If there's not that separation from mother and father, and if there's not that holding fast to each other, to the degree of a triple dog dare, your marriage will suffer. It's got to be there. Last point is uh, intimacy. Does that word kind of make you uncomfortable a little bit? That word intimacy? I think culture's kind of hijacked that word. Because I think when we hear that word, uh, we think bedroom, we think, you know, Victoria's Secrets, we think, you know, one one very, very narrow category, Um, and what I want to do this morning is kind of like redeem that word back to what it, you know, what it's truly meant to be. Um, You know, when we think about what happens like between a husband and wife in the bedroom, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. We're supposed to communicate value to each other. We're supposed to separate from mother and father, hold fast to one another, but there's supposed to be this degree, this level of intimacy between a husband and a wife, and that's not experienced anywhere else. So if you want like a functional working definition of intimacy, um, I stole this from my uh, uh, counseling professor in seminary, and and Paige and I still use it to this day. Intimacy is, is keeping secrets with each other, not from each other. See the difference? Intimacy is keeping secrets with each other, not from each other. Okay, think about it this way. I think what every one of us wants is a relationship where um, this relationship provides two things. It's a place where I'm fully known, all the good, all the bad, all the pros, all the cons. I'm fully known, fully exposed, but at the same time, I am fully accepted. Right? That's what intimacy is, is is to be fully known, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. Right? And that's what marriage is, right? After the honeymoon, you start to learn those things, all of it. It's to be fully known, but at the same time, fully accepted. That's what it means to be uh, intimate with one another. But here's what that takes. To be fully known, it takes courage to be vulnerable, to share. So, this means, you know, you come back home at the end of the day and your spouse asks, how was your day? The temptation is just to go, well, that's good. There's some ups and downs, you know, other jargon, other one-liners. It's another thing to say, you know, thanks for asking. Um, you know, my, my boss said something to me today. It wasn't what he said, but it was the way he said it. It just made me feel small. And I think I got insecure at work. And I kind of clammed up. And I'm kind of embarrassed by that. I'm embarrassed that it affected me the way it did. I wanted to be tougher than that. How's your day? It takes courage to be vulnerable, doesn't it? Because let's just say what we're all thinking is our our resistance to being fully known and being vulnerable is is we're asking ourselves that question in our soul if I tell this person that, are they going to accept me? Are they going to doubt me? Are they going to run? It takes courage to lead in vulnerability. But at the same time, it takes grace. A heavenly grace to create an environment where it 's safe for your spouse for your family members to be vulnerable in um, take the coronavirus you know if your spouse says and this is <laughs> this is not autobiographical okay this next <laughs> illustration it 's not autobiographical this is not about Paige and Jake, but it 's the end of the day and you 're watching the news and You say to your spouse, I think I'm going to go to Costco tomorrow and stock up on masks and antibacterial wipes. And the other spouse is rolling their eyes internally going, oh my good heavens, why are you being so irrational? You see what you've done is you just created an environment where it's not safe to be fully known. It's to say, if I've told you once, I've told you twice, stop being irrational. You're being irrational. Stop. It takes courage to be vulnerable, but it also takes a, a load of grace to create an environment where it's safe to say, you know, when, when I see news stories like that, and when you, you see all these pictures of people suffering, like, that makes me scared too. Maybe not to the degree that you are, but yeah, this, is, this sounds really serious. Doesn't it um, Creating an environment um, that, that's intimate uh, in a relationship, we've got to rediscover the long-lost art of empathy, of empathy. Now, I didn't say sympathy, I said empathy. Uh, if you've ever read or seen anything online by Brené Brown, I'm totally stealing this from her. She makes a distinction, and I think a very helpful one between sympathy and empathy. And here's the difference. Imagine you you have fallen down a well, and you're hurt, and you cannot get out yourself, and a friend comes along and hears your cries from help and looks down the well at you and says, man, I am so sorry you fell down a well. Do you want a sandwich? That's sympathy. Empathy looks entirely different. Empathy says, I'm so sorry you fell down the well. Hold on, I'll be right down. Empathy is, is asking yourself, what is my spouse struggling with? And how can I get in the well with my spouse? How can I, but maybe in a different way, maybe not in the exact same way, maybe it's not the coronavirus, but how can I say, yeah, I'm irrationally fearful too, but it involves my work. It's not necessarily involving viruses or, or sicknesses, but um, I think I get most irrational with my work. Is that how you feel? And the spouse goes, yeah, that is how I feel. You know what you've just done? You've just empathized. You just created within your relationship a safe place to be known and at the same time fully accepted. We want to rush quick into the, uh, you know, well, yeah, the CDC's got it. Right? Don't worry. We, we jump into coaching mode. Uh, We jump into fix-it mode. Uh, We jump into, you know, how can I make it better? Let me put a Band-Aid on it mode. God has given us this great gift of empathy. And that's what intimacy is, is this closeness with one another to say, um, I think I know how that feels. Let me see if I can put myself in your shoes and find an example in my life where I've felt that way. Is this how you feel? Is this similar to how you feel, an experience in which you're engaged in? That's the creation of empathy. That's deep intimacy. And if you don't have it, uh, your marriage will will struggle. Uh, let me end with this. Um, you know, if you've been to a wedding recently, uh, weddings are geared towards the bride. She's in the spotlight. It's her show. It's her day. She's the one in white. She's beautiful. She's gorgeous. Um, Ninety-nine percent of that day is about the bride. But there's one moment, one percent of the service, one spot, you know, in in the wedding ceremony that's geared for the groom. And you know what, what part that is? It's the part where the back door's open and the bride is being escorted down the aisle. Yeah, everybody gets an initial look at the bride, but then what does everybody do? Everybody turns to the groom. Why? Yeah, the toughest nut will always crack at that point in a wedding. Because if you want to see one moment of pure, 100% Angus, pure joy, delight, unfiltered, raw joy and happiness, that's one spot where we see it most clearly. You see it in the groom. And everybody loves to watch that. Everybody loves to see it. That's where you zoom in. You want to see his facial expressions. You turn your your attention away from the bride. You focus on him for just one moment because that's what delight and what joy looks like in another person. Here's what religion says religion says show value uh, to your spouse, Uh, hold fast to your spouse. Um, Create a safe place, you know, for intimacy with your spouse where it's, you know, where you're naked and you're exposed with each other and there's no shame. Do those things. If you do those things, then God is going to do those things for you. He will delight in you. He will treasure you. But that's religion. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says something entirely different. The gospel says, yeah, Treat your spouse as an equal in value. Yes, hold fast to your spouse. Yes, create an environment where it's safe to be vulnerable. But do that because that's exactly what Jesus Christ has already done with you and for you. And what we read throughout the Scriptures and especially the New Testament and and Jesus leaving the throne room... And coming to earth, and and again, we've just gone through Advent. We're coming out of December and starting a new year. Imagine Jesus fully aware, emptying himself of of his glory and entering the womb for nine months, just going dark. Why would Jesus do that? Because he values you. And that's already happened. He's already done that for you. Why did He do that? Why did Jesus come here? Why did He spend 33 years saying yes to the law, obeying every part of it, every aspect of it, creating this perfect record? Why did He separate Himself from the fellowship of the Father? Why did He leave His Father so that He could hold fast His bride who is what? The church. And in his own words, John 17, so that the church and I may be one. Why did he separate himself from the glory of heaven so that he could have reunion with a lost people who he treasures and values? And he's also the God that if you're in a hardship, a difficult season of your life, you know, experiencing, you know, a dark night of the soul and and, and depths that you've never experienced before, you can actually look up and talk to Jesus and say, I feel lost. I feel alone. I feel mad and I don't know why. You know what Jesus is saying? I'm paraphrasing here. He's not saying, oh my gosh, again. Come on. Let's go. Move it. You know what he's saying? He's saying, oh man, I know how that feels. I've been there. That scorn, that shame, that betrayal by friends, that mockery, that feeling of isolation, I know how that feels. I've been there. But here's the good news. In God's economy, the suffering and pain comes first, and then comes the glory, and then comes the lifting up. Where is Jesus right now? He's not in our hearts. He's at the right hand of God the Father with a new body reunited with His Father in the heavens, with a body, a tangible body, a physical body, right now. And what He's telling you is, I've been there. I know the pain. I know the suffering. Actually, in, in, in more ways than we do. He, he's, he's walked in more than a mile in our shoes, but He's saying it's worth it. The pain and the suffering is worth it. Look at the glory. Can you hold on a little longer? Can you take a deep breath? Look at my glory. What happens to me is going to happen to you. That means the suffering that happens to me is also going to happen to you. But guess what? So is the glory. And so is the lifting up. So is being in the heavenly places with the Father. Can you hang on a little longer? He jumped in the well with us, didn't he? He knows your pain. He knows your sorrow. And He's not going to throw idioms at you. He's not going to tell you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He's created a safe place for you to be irrational. He's created a safe place for you to struggle and to be sorrowful. And to change. And to change in the glory. If we follow Him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank You that um, one day... This bride, your church, is going to be dressed in new clothes. We've talked about this righteousness of Christ that has come to us. These righteous robes, and we'll get to see them in all of their radiance, and all of their purity. And we'll get to be with you, um, the groom of the church. We'll be reunited. We'll be home. We'll be where we're supposed to be. Uh, Until then, help us with our families and our relationships, and especially our marriages. These living illustrations of your cosmic marriage uh, to us, your church. Help us to communicate value to one another. Help us to hold fast, to be one flesh with one another. Help us to be vulnerable, safe, empathetic towards each other. And in do so, um, in word and in deed, help us to preach Christ to our neighbors and to those who are outside the church and to those who so desperately want these things. And we ask this all in the matchless name of Christ, who is our brother and our Redeemer. Amen.